racialized, I think, is a more accurate reflection of how people, non-white people, are seen as from a different race, even though race is something that we all share. But it is seen as something that is only attributed to people who are not white. The stories we choose to cover, the people we pick to interview, the words we use to identify our sources, affect the form our stories take and may imbue them with a meaning we never intended. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Pasent Matar is a journalist, writer, and producer based in Toronto. She recently wrote an article for The Walrus entitled, Objectivity is a Privilege Afforded to White Journalists. Welcome to the podcast, Pasent. Thanks for having me, Michael. So to start with, I'd like to find out a little bit about you. You know, tell me, you know, what got you interested in journalism? Well, I'd love to say that journalism was the culmination of a long life plan, but I kind of fell into it by accident. I was graduating from my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto, and I had no plan whatsoever. But I kind of took an inventory of what I liked the most and what what my interests were, which were always writing, talking to people. I'd kind of grown up all over the world and spoke three languages. And I thought about the kind of global worldview that I have and just my interest in in people and places and stories. And so I thought all those things together, if you kind of give them a name, it's, it's journalism. So I applied to Ryerson University here in Toronto, their journalism program. It was the only journalism school I applied to and I got waitlisted. I didn't even get in right away. Luckily made it in and did a two-year master's program in journalism, of which one semester was an internship at CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the public broadcaster here. That was in 2009, and then I spent 10 years there. So it was a a series of um, Hail Marys and flukes, and I ended up staying. So when we say you're a producer, you is mostly radio or TV or doesn't really matter? I started in television at first. The first two years of my journalism work were in television news, national television news. And then in 2011, I moved to radio for what was supposed to be a two-week brief stint, but I ended up staying eight years. So predominantly, I'm a radio and audio producer. Cool. So I may ask you some help on <laughs> on this podcast. So let's talk about this the, the article that you wrote for The Walrus. I was really intrigued when I saw the headline. It's a great read. I think we're going to include the link with this interview, I encourage people to read it because it touches on a lot of things that we've been talking about lately in the podcast. So, so what inspired you to write it? What inspired me to write it, I feel like it had been slowly writing itself in my head for years in the sense that these things would happen at work. But at the time, you know, at CBC, the last eight years of my time there, I was at a national current affairs radio program, which was daily. I just didn't have time to really process it or or take note because, you know, the deadlines and I had hourly deadlines, if you will, for eight years. So I just didn't have time to kind of zoom out and think about things. But I think the real trigger for me writing it was I remember the exact day. It was May 27th of this year, 2020. And I had been invited to give a talk on race and media by an organization here in Hamilton, Ontario. And it was myself and another journalist named Nam Kiwanuka, who hosts a show here in Toronto. You know, I did the talk and I remember feeling very, still like I was walking a tightrope. I was very guarded about what I was saying. You know, I felt like I had to be careful in how I framed things. And obviously the whole point of the talk was to talk about racism in media and journalism. So I did this talk and I remember the talk ending and feeling like I hadn't really quite said what I wanted to because I was still 
playing it safe, if you will, and, and kind of talking about surface level stuff. And then right when the talk ended is when a story broke here in Toronto of a woman named Regis Korczynski Paquette, who's a 29-year-old Afro-Indigenous woman who had fallen from the 24th floor of her balcony while police were in the unit responding to a mental health call. No one in the family was in the unit. It was just her and the police when she fell and there were questions about what happened in her final moments. And so as soon as that story broke, and this was like minutes after me ending my talk, and I saw the same kinds of conversations about how to cover this and the narratives of who got profiled in the early reports of her death, which were predominantly police. And so, you know, all my journalist friends, and if I have a, a whole bunch of group chats, and everyone was talking about this and talking about how to pitch it to their outlets. And I just realized that all the things that I had kind of skirted around in this talk about race and media were playing out right now again. And it was time to actually say what I wanted to. And so that's when I pitched that to the walrus. And that was kind of the genesis of, of the piece. And your, your piece begins with a story about your coverage of the Baltimore uprisings. Could you sort of tell that, that experience about how that sort of unfolded? Absolutely, yeah. So it was uh, 2015, and um, I was still at CBC at this point as a producer. You know, Baltimore was literally burning. A, a young man named Freddie Gray had, been, had died following a, a so-called rough ride in the back of a Baltimore Police Department van. He'd been arrested, put in the back of the van, not strapped in with a seatbelt. And, um, you know, these rough rides, you know, he was kind of flailing around in the back. He severed his neck cord and went into a coma and died, I, I believe, two weeks later in April. And the city of Baltimore took to the streets in protest against what happened to him and against police brutality in general. So I flew to Baltimore from Toronto for a documentary on police brutality, centering on the story of another, another man named Tyrone West, who had also died following an interaction with police when he was arrested at a, a traffic stop. So I flew there for 36 hours, and the first place I went to was a Freddie Gray's neighborhood in the north area of Baltimore. I remember the city was under curfew at the time, so around 10 p.m. is when I started to hear helicopters circling overhead and things like that. And I was getting ready to go home, back to my hotel, when a young man stopped me and asked me what news organization I was with, because I was out holding my, my microphone, my Marantz, my audio recorder, and he just stopped and took an interest in kind of what news outlet I was with. So we started talking and I turned on my microphone and I asked him what his name was. He told me his name was Lonnie Moore. And I asked him, you know, how many Freddie Grays are in this neighborhood right now? So as we started talking, another young man joined us and I, I asked him his name and he told me his name was Jared Jones. You know, one of the very first things you learn in journalism. In fact, one of the very early journalism professors I had named uh, Bob Ortega, who's now at CNN, I believe, told us that if you can't get an uh, interviewee's name right, you're, you're, I'm, I'm failing you on your assignments. So from day one, it was drilled into my mind that you get people's names right. So as I started to write down Jared Jones's name, I was spelling it out to him and I said, J-A-R-E-D. And he said, no, no, it's J-A-R-R-O-D, Jones. So before long, you know, these two men who were strangers to each other were almost completing each other's sentences, almost in unison sometimes, talking about their interactions with police in Baltimore, ways that they'd been stopped and harassed and very invasive personal searches. And they were just talking about this moment, this boiling over moment in Baltimore. 
and the real need to have those, the six police officers who were charged in the killing of Freddie Gray, the importance of them being convicted. Those six officers, were none of them were convicted in the end. Anyway, we did an interview. I thought it was very illuminating just how similar their experiences were, despite them being strangers to each other. And they just said, the only difference between us and Freddie Gray is that police haven't killed us yet. I remember Jared Jones in detailing some of the things that happened to him. He said, you know, I think some people think that we're making this stuff up. That night, you know, after the interview ended, I was trying to go back into the subway, but all of a sudden curfew had come into effect within like a one minute, you know, time difference. All of a sudden police were swarming into the intersection. And every time we tried to leave somewhere, we were blocked by a police officer telling us we couldn't leave that way tried to go into the subway, they wouldn't let us in. We tried to exit every possible way in the intersection and we were blocked from doing so by different police officers. And all of a sudden one police officer turned on us and started chasing us out of the intersection, his baton out swinging wildly and calling Jared Jones all sorts of names and insults and racial slurs. And uh, we ran for our lives. Like I ran and my equipment, my bag with my radio equipment was bouncing behind me clumsily. That's how my interview that night ended. You know, I'd, I'd also spoken to other people while I was in Baltimore, but what stayed in my mind the most was that vivid, almost illumination of the very things that I had come to Baltimore to, to cover. And that changed your perspective, you think? I don't know if it changed my perspective. I think it it just showed me in real time what could happen. You know, if you're a young Black man in, in America and the police are in your neighborhood, I mean, just how quickly it could turn. I think it's worth mentioning that when I had first arrived in the neighborhood, I came during the day and there was a big block party underway because the day I arrived in Baltimore was the day that State Attorney Marilyn Mosby had announced charges against the six police officers. And so there was an air of celebration in the neighborhood. There was like a a DJ and and music playing and there were moms and kids and, and youth holding signs about Freddie Gray. And it was a very kind of celebratory, safe, family oriented day. And I just saw how quickly it turned once the curfew came into effect and we were literally chased out the block that minutes ago had been a place of celebration. I remember thinking, like, we're actually trying to leave. We are trying to heed this curfew, and I'm trying to get back to my hotel. Like, we're all trying to leave, but everywhere we turned, we were, we were blocked by a different officer. And I just saw how quickly things could turn, even when you're trying to kind of, you know, follow orders. Yeah, it ended in, in this, this officer chasing us with the baton and, and the swearing and the racial slurs toward Jared. So it just put into full force, you know, the kind of dynamic that I had come to report on. And here it was playing out minutes after an interview about it. It felt very meta almost. The thing I took away from your article very much was it was almost a personal journalistic journey for you that these these different events that, that you had covered and it was sort of changing your perspective or changing your view on certain issue, issues like objectivity, like the way newsrooms cover police and crimes you know in the story you say that you talk about there's like a deep crisis in credibility in in canadian media what do you mean by that i mean that in two ways so i talk about you know this deep crisis of credibility in canadian media and i would say 
you know, it's, it's not just Canada. I think it's playing out in the US. And, you know, since this article has come out, I've heard from people in Sweden, Wales, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. So this is a widespread media issue, but I wanted to focus on Canada. And what I mean by that is there is a degree of mistrust towards racialized people's accounts of racism when you go to cover them in media. There's almost a higher burden of proof in talking about racism when we're pitching stories about them. So there's the mistrust of the very people we're trying to cover. And I'm talking predominantly Black, Indigenous, and other racialized people who have experiences with racism. And then there's another layer, which is the mistrust of Black, Indigenous, and other racialized journalists when they're trying to cover stories about racism. And so this played out a few times for me. And with Baltimore, what ended up happening is me coming back to my newsroom in Toronto, talking about what happened with Lonnie Moore, Jared Jones, and, and the interview I was doing with these two men and how it ended. And I wanted to play some of the interview and put it on the air. And my executive producer at the time didn't want to run it. She'd asked me very almost defensively, you know, did you corroborate this with the police? Did you get comment from them? In the context of my reporting there in my documentary, I had contacted the Baltimore Police Department multiple times. I'd even reached out to their union. Neither of them responded to my media requests. But I, I told her that I did, that I didn't hear back. And then came the next question, which to me really solidified the issue here. And she asked me, how do you know that these young men gave you their real names? You know, by this point, I had been in journalism for six years, and it's standard fare for journalists to go out to protests, festivals, rallies, speeches, and do what, what are called streeters. You know, you turn on your microphone and you ask someone, hey, what do you think of the protest today? Or what, tell me about your sign. And someone gives their name as so-and-so. And in all my time in journalism, uh, we take it at face value. And, you know, we even hedge a bit. Sometimes you'll see articles that say, a young man who gave his name as so-and-so but I had never, ever seen a mistrust of someone even giving their name. And again, there was a real just, even in her questioning, it seemed so mistrustful. Like, how do you know they gave the real names? Do you think her concern was that the things they were saying were very volatile or very, you know, confrontational or... or that she felt that there had to be some sort of balancing factor in here that maybe, yes, we could use this stuff, but we would have to make sure that the police had the opportunity to present their side. But even maybe even get to that point because she was more concerned about whether they were really who they said they were. Exactly. And here's the thing. I mean, one of the, the very kind of basic principles in journalism is balance. And I think, you know, we could spend a whole other interview talking about balance. But on the matter of balance, I had done my due diligence. I had reached out to not just the police, but the police union who, you know, could also present the views of the police that they represent. And so this was no longer a question of balance. This was a question, again, of credibility of an executive producer inherently seeming to disbelieve the accounts of, you know, two black men in the middle of a huge protest against police brutality in a city that was literally on fire. It's, I think if this happened in other stories that I had covered and not just me, but, you know, we cover uh, the show that I worked at, we did, you know, three big stories a day, half hours at a time. And, and by this point I'd been there for six years. So I'd done 
a lot of storytelling, a lot of journalism. And it was the first time that I'd seen such mistrust of not just the accounts, but the fact that people said are saying who they are. I wasn't sure what the expectation is here. Is it that I ask these young men for their government issued IDs? You know, this is never something that I had thought of doing in anywhere else. And again, it's standard fare. You put people on the air and you say they gave their name as so-and-so. So something was amiss in that interaction. And, and when I told her, I offered to her, I said, you know, well, one of the young men corrected me in the spelling of his name. So that to me is an indication that if he was giving me a name that was untrue, he wouldn't care how I wrote it because it wasn't his name anyway. But he made a point of correcting how I spelt his name. And I offered that to her as a kind of sign that, that they were telling the truth about who they were and not just who they were, but their accounts. You know, the fact that I was in Baltimore at the time from Toronto for, to cover this issue, you know, it wasn't such a stretch of the imagination to me to, to believe what these young men were telling me. Um, but again, this is why we, you know, I did put out the call to the police and stuff like that. So, you know, very quickly, the conversation then turned to her telling me about the importance of verification and accuracy and, you know, almost explaining to me the job of journalism. And I was very just, I couldn't understand what was happening and why something that seemed so straightforward to me was now turning into almost a, a lecture on the, the importance of accuracy and verification and balance. And so I left her, her office with a look on my face that garnered the attention of, a, of another colleague of mine, an older white male who saw my face and asked what had happened. And I told him and he went into her office and tried to basically explore what the issue was. And, and after him talking to her, she relented and the story then ran. But that was just the beginning. I think it was my first experience with seeing that there was a higher burden of proof that not only do I have to present, you know, the standard thing, which is to get balance and to try to, you know, contact the, to contact other, you know, parties that are mentioned in a story for their side of the story and for accountability. But uh, it was the first time that I'd been really questioned on even the identity of the people that I was interviewing in person, not over the phone or the internet or anonymously. These were people that, you know, I was in their neighborhood. We were questioning whether they said who they were. That was a first for me. And it, it really illuminated the insidious ways that we place higher burdens of proof on stories about race and racism, especially if they're from Black and Indigenous and other racialized people, but especially I would say Black and Indigenous people. You bring up so many fascinating points in it. You know, one of the things I did want to ask you about was you mentioned throughout it at several times people you term as radicalized journalists. Racialized. I mean, what do you pardon? Racialized. Me? Racialized journalists. What, what do you mean by that? It's two things. One is I think race is a. I mean, it it is a social contra- construct, and it you know race is something that is. It's the way that we're seen in a kind of social setting is that we are racialized. It's also an attempt for me to, you know, people used to use, and I think in the U.S. it's still very common to use the word minority when referring to, you know, people who are Black, Indigenous, Latino, etc. So in a city like Toronto, the term visible minority is actually, what's the word? It's not accurate because Toronto is now over 50% non-white. So when you say, you know, interviewing someone from a minority group in a city like Toronto, that's actually, it contradicts itself because we're not minority here. So, um, 
So I use the word racialized to not slip into the, use, the, the word visible minority because I don't think it's accurate. And I also think, you know, language is sometimes also an expression of power dynamics and the idea that we're minority, A, in Toronto doesn't, isn't actually accurate. And also I think there's something about it that doesn't sit well with me. So racialized, I think, is a more accurate reflection of how people non-white people are seen as from a different race, even though race is something that we all share, but it is seen as something that is only attributed to people who are not white. And this is strictly, I'm going to ask this just strictly for the sake of our conversation. You are a a non-white journalist. That's right. Okay. When you were covering stories on racial issues, do you see that you're held to a different standard or expectation? Uh, Yeah, I would say so. And it's not just me. I mean, you know, I think all, well, I don't want to speak for everyone, but it's very common for racialized journalists in these mainstream institutions to have this like network of support of other racialized journalists in group chats, in big group DMs on Twitter. You know, you think it's just you sometimes where you're like, is this, is it just me? Or are they asking me you know, you know what it's like, you sit at a pitch meeting and everyone's going around sharing their stories. And I'm no stranger to the fact that you have to kind of make a case for why we should do the story. You come with research and facts and evidence and that kind of thing. But what I found generally over the years, and I don't want to be too prescriptive and say it happened every single time, but it happened enough times where I found that when there was a question about race and racism in stories, there was almost a higher expectation for stats and research. And it's almost like you had to come with absolute, you know, smoking gun of evidence that racism was at play here. And in Canada, that's kind of a complicating thing to do because um, race-based data is very, very rarely collected. So I remember one story, for example, that I was pitching on the lack of Black academics in higher learning in academia at the PhD level. I got together this panel of Black academics to talk about, you know, how few of them there are, how they often got confused for janitorial staff, how their research questions were, or research debates were often questioned as to not being worthy, the lack of support, like it was a a big thing. And it was prompted by a, a young Black PhD candidate who had put out an open call on Twitter for her to help people, other Black students with their applications and letters of interest and intent to kind of help them along because there was very little support for Black academics. And I remember we did do the story, but at the 11th hour, I was getting questions from my senior producer about show us the data on how few Black academics there are in, in higher learning. And this was the problem, you know. Up until very recently, Canadian universities, many of them did not collect race-based data. So I couldn't say, here's the number. We have those kind of numbers for incarceration rates, for example, but we didn't have it in academia. But the qualitative conversation was so strong and the panelists were so strong. And again, we did do the story, but there was this like, show us the numbers. Are you sure? When I knew just from my friends and and family just how common it is that these experiences were not unique and that we had a researcher, a Black academic who'd been researching this for 20, 30 years, you know, she had the information and the the data. Anyway, I could just tell over the years, and not just me, so many of my colleagues, that 
there was often more scrutiny, more almost skepticism, mistrust, like they really wanted to see it spelled out in absolute airtight form. It's almost like the allegation of racism is worse than the charge of racism itself. Do you think that's a, you know, sort of a, a journalistic, like just an automatic response that, oh, you're going to say something, but we need to make sure we have data to support it. And that maybe there's more more people or, or editors are more concerned when the issues of stories about race come up, about making sweeping or, I don't want to say controversial, but differing presentations. They want to see that data there to prop up. Absolutely. And I get that. And this is by no means me saying we should be doing, you know, stories without doing our due diligence and our own research, etc. And I think this is the other thing, too. You often get into allegations that if you say something, you know, that a story has racism at its center, that it's suddenly a sweeping, controversial, you know, charge. But I would offer when we do stories about, for example, gender inequality, if we talk about issues of perhaps sexual harassment, even with journalists, I don't know if this was if this awful phenomenon made it to the US, but there came this this moment where women reporters in the field who were doing live standups would often get accosted by men shouting a very foul thing as they were live. And, you know, when we did that story, reporters from within the organization got to talk about their own experiences with this. And it wasn't seen as unobjective to do so. It was a story that was happening to women, and I would say predominantly to white women who were on the air, and they were, as they should be, able to talk about these experiences. And we did stories about this, about what this is like. Obviously, this is something that plays out almost on camera. You have the audio, you have the video, like it's there. But I would say there was a reluctance in general, in many news organizations for then Black journalists, Indigenous journalists, Latina journalists to say, here's racism I faced on the job. You know what I mean? It's like we have an easier time talking about sexual harassment and gender issues when it comes to women. But when it comes to race, you can just tell there's a there's a reluctance and there's suddenly, well, you can't be objective and talk about your own experience. But it's like, but why are we comfortable doing that when it comes to issues of, of gender, and again, specifically almost when it relates to, to white women. So again, I, I really do understand, and I this is by no means an attempt to say that we shouldn't be doing our research and our due diligence. In the story about Black academics, any university that was mentioned, we wrote to them and said, we're doing the story, what research or data do you have? How do you respond to the suggestion that Black academics are not faring well at your institutions because of a lack of support? It's called accountability and transparency. And we did that. I did that as a, ma- as a matter of, of principle and kind of as a starting factor. But sometimes even just getting the story greenlit is just a fight in and of itself. Yeah. Let me ask you just straightforward about the title, uh, which really kind of is the, the thrust of your article. You know, how did you come to the conclusion that objectivity is a privilege afforded only to white journalists? So I should preface this by saying that the headline was chosen by my editor at The Walrus. I thought it was quite a brilliant, because I wasn't sure, how do I, what do I name this? And obviously that wasn't for me. So my editor is the one who came up with that. And I think it really boils down to, 
with the disclaimer again that this is not all white journalists and you know there's a lot of little disclaimers but overall what i think that headline means is when white journalists come to a news organization with expertise whether it be on law or politics or the environment or gender issues or science it's seen as expertise. It's seen as an asset. You know, you could have someone who lived in Japan for 12 years and therefore has a unique understanding of Japan. It's quite, uh, it's seen as quite an attractive thing. And they're relied on as, as um, subject matter experts in their, in their shows or in their, um, you know, newsroom. But when you have a racialized journalist who is well-versed in issues of of race and racism and things like that, I would say that it's seen as a risk factor. It's seen as something to be careful of. It's seen as almost a liability when they have a deep knowledge and real life experience with the very issues that I would say are the defining issues of our time right now and have been for a long time. And suddenly it's like almost like a proceed with caution. And I can tell you that um, since the article came out, I've, I've met with quite a few former colleagues of mine. And one of them is an, an older white man who I worked with at CBC. And he told me that, you know, he'd been in rooms and in places where my name would come up at kind of higher echelons of leadership and management. And the short story about me was that, sh- that I cared too much about issues of race, that I knew that I was too close to it. And I found this very peculiar because I was relied on. And I, I, you know, I don't want to say I'm the only person who ever talked about race and racism. That's not true at all. But I never heard, I, I never heard that somebody cared too much about the environment or cared too much about politics or cared too much about, it just wasn't a charge that I think is equally applied. But suddenly with race, it's too much. Like your very presence almost something to be weary of. And I think many of us uh, racialized journalists feel this from the second we step into some of these newsrooms. So this, uh, this idea that objectivity is only afforded to white journalists is kind of a, a shorthand of saying that our expertise, um, you know, racialized journalists' expertise and familiarity and lived experience with race and racism is seen as being unobjective, being subjective, but You know, if you ask a white woman journalist about her experiences with being discriminated against because she's a woman, both within her newsroom and outside of it, I don't think that's seen as unobjective in the same way. And so I think white people in general, massive disclaimer here, can be seen as subject matter experts with assets and with knowledge of things that are a good thing to have. But when, when we have subject matter experts and, and inroads into communities that are often hard to kind of get onto mainstream media, it's seen as unobjective. And I think there's a double standard there. Yeah, it, it's really kind of crazy if you think about it. How much, how much we think about, and you said it yourself, that you, know, you, have, you bring experts in. I mean, they're, they're people, they're former athletes who are hired to be experts on sports on on their particular sport on basketball or whatever you know you don't hear people saying they talk too much about basketball because that's who they are and the fact that they're you know you you know they're criticizing you for you know you know being overly concerned or talking too much about race i mean that's your life experience that's that's who you are 
and that's supposed to be part of our tool toolkit when we, we go out and cover stories. And the fact that you part of your life experience is you were chased down the street with a by a police officer with a baton. Yeah. I'm knocking here and I, I wanted to kind of point out, you know, here's another thing that happens in media a lot is we have so-called crime specialists who are often analysts and, and kind of on retainer for news organizations to talk about when crime is in the media. And often these crimes or so-called legal experts are former police officers. This is a very common thing that, you know, you have, you know, former police officer so-and-so who's a certain news organization's crime specialist. And I don't think anyone says this can't be objective because you're a former police officer. So, you know, the sports thing, I think, is almost less innocuous. But to this day, you know, I, I think a lot of news organizations depend on these crime specialists that are often former, you know, law enforcement. And one last important thing I wanted to make about this topic of objectivity is I think objectivity has been falsely applied to be towards journalists and people when I took objectivity to mean an objectivity of method when you're telling a story, which is that you, you know, whatever the story is, you are objective in the means by which you are getting all voices to be part of your story. So you're contacting all parties involved, you're spending just as much time and just as much effort making sure that people have a say in your story. I don't think, from what I understand, objectivity was supposed to refer to us as people because I think it's almost a non-starter. No one is objective. But I think objectivity has become a stand-in. And I'm drawing from Wesley Lowry here, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who used to be with the Washington Post and is now with Quibi. But he, you know, said that objectivity is almost a stand-in for, you know, the norms of, of whiteness. And that's what's kind of the objective neutral. And anything outside of that is seen as unobjective, which is why I'm almost, I almost want to use this as a moment to say objectivity was supposed to be about the methods by which we gather our news. And I'm by no means saying that we should all be saying out loud who, who we're voting for and what we think of this idea that we should all be objective, especially in this day and age with social media and things like that, is, I think, missing the point of what we should be doing and how we should be bringing objectivity towards how we approach our jobs and our stories and our news gathering. Yeah. And I think you, because you also address verification, balance, objectivity, and, and accuracy in your, which are kind of the standards that journalists profess to follow. But I can tell you, I've talked to other journalists, many of them younger journalists, who are frustrated with the way that they're sort of forced to cover stories. They feel kind of bound and, you know, are questioning, you know, these, these sort of, you know, journalistic standards and practices that we've gone on is like either not being used correctly or, or maybe even stifling the ability to cover a story that's true, the truth of the story. I mean, the fact that you're out and you're covering a story in Baltimore having to do with race, and suddenly you're not allowed to bring in a certain perspective because of X or Y is problematic. So tell me, you said that you've had, you've had an opportunity to talk to, or people have spoken to you since the article has come out. Going forward, what, what do you hope, for your life as a journalist, what do you hope you know, our industry can sort of do to, to change our direction in the way we do things? Oh, there's so much. And I, I wish I had the full answers. But I think as a starting point, 
if we're so concerned with accuracy in journalism, and I do believe that's literally the, the standing foundation of, of journalism is to be accurate in our facts, especially in today's world, as a starting point, our newsrooms should be accurate reflections of the world outside of them. And I can tell you that in a place like Toronto, that is not the case. Toronto is over 50% non-white right now, and you walk into any newsroom, and that, that's not reflected in the makeup of the newsroom. And the higher up you go, so, you know, I think there's a lot of self-congratulating when you look at turn on the TV or listen to the radio, and there are Black, Indigenous, South Asian hosts, and it looks great, and I'm not dismissing those gains but that kind of surface level diversity where you can see it, but not necessarily see it in the editorial choices that are being made in who gets promoted, who gets full-time stable work, who is leading these news organizations. The higher up you go at, I would venture almost any news organization, especially kind of mainstream big institutions, the more predominantly, and I would say exclusively white it gets. So I think that just having, you know, people in the room, quote unquote, racialized journalists in the room is not enough. They need to be at decision-making tables with enough comfort and security and power to challenge norms and to challenge and put forward new ways of thinking and new ways of storytelling. And that's not happening. And I also think because there's so few of us in the room, there is almost like an overwhelming burden that gets unfairly and almost, you know, insidiously placed on us to, you know, guarantee a spectrum of experiences to point out where, you know, coverage may fall short to kind of push back on perhaps problematic storytelling or maybe inject some new voices in there. It's almost like we're doing double duty. We're doing the journalism, but then there's so much that's being asked of us that we're being relied, relied on to do. But then by the same token, we're seen as being unobjective for doing so. And this is something that Jay Rosen at NYU has written about too. It's almost like this, this contradictory thing where you want us in the room because you want us to bring this perspective, but then as a almost a need to stay in that room, suppressing that perspective so as not to be seen as unobjective. And you see where the kind of impossibility of it all is. There's a lot of work to do. It can't be surface. It can't be, you know, another diversity and inclusion initiative with guest speakers. Like, I want to know what your leadership looks, looks like and what you're doing to kind of challenge it and shake it up and how you're going to make long lasting changes and not just, you know, posting black squares and talking a big game about diversity and inclusion, but actually manifesting it and not asking of your own, you know, of which there are very few in, in many news organizations, your own racialized journalists to be coming up with the solutions for a problem that they did not create. Yeah, I don't think there's anything to add to that. Pasant, this was a, a fascinating conversation. It gave me a lot, a lot to think about. And I hope the people who heard this are also thinking about it as well. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. 
Emilia Brust helped with our booking, Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>